Have you ever wondered what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act when we come together, when we gather together as a church? Well, Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14. And the reason that he answers that question is because everything that the Corinthian believers were doing when they were coming together was in danger of sabotaging the church. They were coming together, they were doing a lot of things, but many of the things, and perhaps most of the things that they were doing was sabotaging what God wanted to do in their midst. And we started this two-part message in 1 Corinthians last week, and we looked at chapter 11, and we discovered five things that the Corinthian believers were doing that was in danger of sabotaging what God wanted to do. I want us to review as we get started this morning. The first thing that they were doing is they were rejecting loving authority. You see, the Bible teaches us that in every area of life, God has established authority for the good of everyone. He's done that in government. He's done that in in the family. He's done that in the church. He's done it in every area of life. Paul said it this way. He said, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is is man, her husband. And, and the head of Christ is God. So what Paul was saying, what the Bible is saying, is even Jesus submitted to the authority of his father, even though he was equal with God in, in, in his um, value, in his worth, in his um, desire to be worshipped, he submitted himself to the Father's authority to show us what submission looks like. And so you and I need to understand that when we come together as a body of believers, if we want to sabotage the church, then what we do is we, we, um, we refuse that loving authority. Now the next thing that they did is they emulated worldly practices. And we see this in the 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 lack of headdress that the women wore and the the hair length that the men had and and those things really aren't relevant to us today but the principles that they teach are relevant to us today you you see the corinthian women when they came to church and they weren't wearing the headdress they were looking like the temple prostitutes that um serviced the temple of aphrodite and so when they dressed that way they were dressing just like the temple prostitutes and when the men let their hair grow out they were looking just like the effeminate men who were practicing homosexuality in that day. And so there were two truths that that Paul was teaching here. One, he was teaching us modesty. Both men and women need to dress modestly when we come together in church. And really, we should do that all the time. And then the second thing he was teaching us is that we need to celebrate our differences as men and women. Men need to be men. Women need to be women. And we need to say amen to that. Amen. And so we don't emulate worldly practices. The next thing that they did is they were implementing a caste system. In other words, they were treating people differently based upon what they had, what they wore, where they lived, how much money they had, whether they were slave or free. They were coming together. Some were eating and drinking and getting drunk and and other people had nothing. And Paul said, you shouldn't act that way. You shouldn't do that. When you come together as a body, you should love and respect everyone. And so we don't implement that caste system. The fourth thing that they were doing is they were avoiding self-examination. They weren't examining themselves. And the Bible says that whenever we come together, we should examine 
ourselves. This particularly was in, in the context of the Lord's Supper, but we should do it all the time. And we discover that because they were not examining themselves, they were not dealing with the sin in their life, there were some believers who were getting sick and there were some who were even dying. God takes this sin thing seriously in our life. And so when we come together as a believer on a Sunday morning or whenever we come together, we should first of all ask God to search our heart. We, we should see if there's anything in our life that's displeasing to God. If there is anything that's displeasing to God, we need to confess it, repent of it, and turn from it. We need to get those things right. You see, we need to understand that God's grace is not an excuse for our sinful living. And then the third, the fifth thing, excuse me, that they did that, that was in danger of sabotaging their church is this. They were forgetting the main thing. They were forgetting that, that when they came together, the main thing was Jesus, his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross. You, you need to understand that we can come together and we can have incredible singing. We can have practical teaching. We can, we can have eloquent prayers. We can do all of these different things like that. But if we're not focusing on the fact that Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins, we're forgetting the main reason that we're to come together as a body of believers. And we discovered all those in chapter 11. But when we move to chapter 12, we discover five other things that they were doing that could sabotage their believers that I want to talk to you or sabotage their church, which I want to talk to you about this morning. Here's the first thing. When you misunderstand baptism, you're in danger of sabotaging the church. Now, I'm not talking about water baptism. Now, to understand water baptism is important biblically. Water baptism is our public confession of our faith in Jesus. Water baptism is, is obedience to what Jesus commands us to do. We're commanded to be baptized. Water baptism is vitally important. And so if you're here and, and you're a Christ follower you have, and you haven't been baptized by immersion, I want to encourage you to make a commitment this morning to be baptized. And, and I would encourage you to, to give our office a call and schedule that and be baptized next week. Because if you haven't been baptized, you're living in disobedience to what Jesus commands. But listen, there's something much more dangerous to our church gatherings than misunderstanding water baptism. And that's when we misunderstand spirit baptism. You see, when we misunderstand what spirit baptism is, what it teaches, what it's all about, it can sabotage our church. Now listen to what Paul says in chapter 12, verse 13. He says, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now there are some today that tell us that the baptism of the spirit is an experience that you have after you were saved. They tell us that the baptism of the Spirit is a second blessing. And most of the people who believe this about the baptism of the Spirit believe that this baptism of the Spirit is then accompanied by speaking in tongues. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. He says, we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Now that word baptized is in the past tense. And Paul says they were all baptized by one spirit. 
And so every single believer in Corinth had been baptized by the Spirit. There wasn't a single believer in Corinth who had not experienced the baptism of the Spirit. And yet we know as we read chapters 12, 13, and 14 that not all of them spoke in tongues. So understand, speaking in tongues is not a sign that you have been baptized by the Spirit. And so if someone comes to you and and says, have you been baptized in the Spirit? If you're a Christian, and we'll talk about this in a minute, you should say yes. And then if they ask you, well, when did you speak in tongues? If you haven't had that experience, I haven't. You can say, well, I haven't. And then if they say, well, then you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, you need to say, well, God told me I have. Why do you believe I haven't? You see, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the baptism of the Spirit. You see, baptism of the Spirit has nothing to do with some supernatural experience where we express an ecstatic utterance. Notice what Paul says. We were all baptized by one Spirit into what? We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. You see, biblically, the baptism of the Spirit is that event at salvation in which you and I become a part of the body of Christ. We are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. It's when God's Spirit comes to live in me, to dwell in me, I am immersed by the Spirit, I am consumed by the Spirit, I am inhabited by the Spirit, God's Spirit comes into my life. And let me tell you, that is a life-changing event. It's a life-changing event. The baptism of the Spirit takes place when you're saved. But understand, The purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just for God's Spirit to come into your life. The purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to make you a part of the body of Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit connects you with the body. In other words, when you become a child of God, you no longer can live in isolation. I believe every single person who has been born of the Spirit of God has a desire deep within them to live in community with other believers. There's something within us. What is it? It is the Spirit of God that is drawing us to be a part of the body of Christ. How many of you are Star Trek fans? Raise your hand. Got a few nerds here. Well, the most recent Star Trek movies, you know, have a villain there, and the villain are the Borg. Do you remember the Borg? Remember the Borg? The Borg somehow, some way, connect everyone together. And when you're a part of the Borg, you become a part of the collective. Do you remember that in the Star Trek movies? Well, in a manner of speaking, when God's Spirit comes to live in you, When you were born into his family, you become a part of Christ's body collectively. And we are intertwined together. You see, the baptism of God's Holy Spirit is that moment when you are brought into his body and you are connected to the body of Christ. And so if you have been saved, you have been baptized 
in the Spirit. But notice what else he says here because he doesn't finish there. He says, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, what does that mean? Now, I want you to go back because Paul says that we were all baptized by one Spirit. But then he says, we were all given one spirit to drink. This reminds us of what Jesus said in John 7 when he was at the Feast of Tabernacles. In John 7, Jesus said this, and let me find it. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from him. And then it goes on to say this. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given to anyone. Now, the Spirit of God was given at Pentecost. At Pentecost, the church was born. And all of the believers were baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit of God immersed them. They were consumed by God's Spirit. They were covered by God's Spirit. But the Bible says that we are also to drink of the Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean? Do you remember what Jesus or Paul said in Ephesians 5? He said, don't get drunk with wine where is excess, but instead be filled with the Spirit. When we talk about drinking the Spirit, we're talking about the filling of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is something that God's Spirit does to us when we receive Jesus. The filling of the Spirit is when we invite God's Spirit through surrender to take control of our life. Now, the Bible says that we should daily, regularly, consistently be filled with the Spirit. And so every believer is baptized by the Spirit the moment they are saved. You are connected to the body of Christ. But at the same time, every believer is commanded by God to be filled. You are to regularly drink the Spirit and let God's Spirit control and consume your life. And so, have you been baptized by the Spirit? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are you connected to the body And are you drinking of the Spirit by regularly surrendering yourself to His will and His control in your life? The second way that you can sabotage the church is this, by believing that serving is for someone else. When you believe that serving is for someone else, you're in danger of sabotaging the church. You see, many churches, and praise God, not ours, but many churches are divided into two groups. You have the givers and the takers. You have the consumers and the contributors. You have the spectators and the participants. But but that was never the way that God intended for it to be. You see, the Bible teaches that God has gifted each of us with certain gifts to serve Him and His body. Now listen to what it says beginning in verse 7 of chapter 12. Now to each one... The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, if your Bible is open, circle or underline that phrase, common good. 
To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. Now before we look at the key truth in this passage, and there is a key truth, let me just say that there's much debate in the church today over spiritual gifts. Some tell us that there are certain gifts that that are no longer prevalent or present in the church today. That those certain gifts have ceased to exist, and, and they give biblical reasons for that. There are other believers that say that's not the case. That every gift that we read about in the New Testament, God desires for his church to exercise today. And there is much debate among that among Christians. Now, here's what I know. There are Bible-believing Christians. Now, let me say that again. Bible-believing. We're not talking about believers that don't believe this book. We're talking about there are Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus with all of their heart, who disagree on this issue. And so here's what you need to understand. Regardless of where you stand on this issue of spiritual gifts, you need to be respectful of those who differ from you. You need to be respectful of those who disagree with you. Because understand, this is a debatable issue. Now here's what I believe. And this is what you've been waiting for. Here's what I believe. God is going to gift us with what we need to accomplish his purpose. Write it down. God's going to gift us with what we need to accomplish his purpose. Now, you're going to follow up with that and say, okay, well, what about speaking in tongues? What about miracles? What about gifts of healing? Well, here's my answer. God is going to gift us with what we need to accomplish his purpose. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God is on his throne. And I believe that God will gift us with what we need to accomplish his purpose. Now, here's what you need to understand. Gifts aren't given for your good. Gifts are given for the good of the body. And gifts aren't something the Bible teaches that we strive after. The only gift that the Bible ever tells us to earnestly desire is in chapter 14, and that's prophecy. That's the only one. So it's not like we say, oh, God, give me this gift. God, give me this gift. God, give me this gift. That's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches in verse, um, let me see here, verse 11, that the Spirit gives the gifts to whomever He determines. In other words, it's the Spirit's um, um, job to determine who He wants to give what gifts to. And so if the Spirit wants to give you a certain gift, that's wonderful. That's great. Use it for the common good. So gifts aren't given for our good. Gifts are given for the common good. That's what it says in verse 7. And so listen to what I'm about to say. This is important. If you're a believer, you have been given a spiritual gift. Every one of us have received a manifestation of the Spirit. That's what verse 7 says. You've received a spiritual gift. 
If you are not utilizing that gift for the good of the body, you are prostituting the gift that God has given you. Let me say that again. If you have been given a gift by God, and if you were a believer, you have been, and you are not using that gift for the common good, then you are prostituting your gifts. Because here's what I know Scripture teaches. God doesn't give you a gift to boost your career. God doesn't give you a gift to make a name for yourself. God gives you a gift for the common good. God gives you a gift to build up the body of Christ. And each and every one of us who are Christ's followers need to use our gift for God's glory and for the good of the body. Now let's go on and see what else he says, beginning in verse 14. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in the fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable or treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack so that there should be no division in the body, but, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Paul says that the body of Christ is one body. But that one body is made up of many different parts and every single part of the body is important. Now, I know you've heard this before. Everybody is somebody in God's body. Have you heard that? Would you say that with me? Everybody is somebody in God's body. Would you say that one more time? Everybody is somebody in God's body. Now, are you part of the body? That means that you're a somebody. That means that the gifts, that means the abilities that God has given you are important to the body. Every part of the body is important. Every part of the body is equally important. I read this past week, and, and I don't know if it's true or not. I, I believe that where I read it would be true, but, but if you tell me it's not true, don't email me. You don't need to tell me. You need to check your facts. Don't do that. You know... Critiquing is not a spiritual gift. But I read, I read this week that, that if you didn't have your big toe, you'd have to learn how to walk all over again. Your big toe is that important to your walking that if you didn't have your big toe, you would have to teach your body to walk. Your big toe. Nasty, smelly, toe jam between it, big toe. But if you didn't have it, You'd have to learn how to walk all over. And when one part of the body suffers, the Bible says every part suffers. We need every part of the body. I discovered that about six weeks ago. Sherry and I were in Dallas. 
And, um, and we, we drove Thursday and spent the night outside of Dallas and got up early Friday morning to go to the gym there in the hotel. It was still dark. And, and I got up, and I hadn't turned the light on yet. I started walking, and I hit my little toe on my right foot on the corner of the bed. Ow! It hurt. Now, let me tell you, as your pastor, I did not say a bad word. I don't think I thought a bad word. But, but it was excruciating pain. I looked down at my toe, and I kid you not, my toe had already started swelling up immediately, and it was turned at a 90-degree angle from my other toes. Now, now, I'm not a toe doctor. I'm not a podiatrist. But I know that when your toe is turned that way, it's not normal. <laughs> and, and so I, I, you know, call my nurse wife, Sherry, who's compassionate toward me in all things. And I go, Sherry, look at my toe. And she looks at it, black and blue and swollen, turned the other way, and she starts laughing. (laughs) Gift of mercy. Gift of mercy. And, I mean, it was just not right. And, And so we called the manager of the hotel because there was a board on the bed that was not supposed to be there. They had tried to fix something and and. They didn't fix my toe. And so he came and he, oh, that doesn't look good. I said, it doesn't feel good either. He said, you need to go to an emergency room. I said, well, they won't do anything except move my toe back. And I'm going to do that. I just wanted you to see it first. And because I'm not paying for tonight's room. And he said, we don't want you to pay for tonight's room. But so after we got all that straightened out, I took my toe and I popped it back and taped it up and and because you can't really do a whole lot for a broken toe and um and it was miserable it was awful a little toe i mean just thinking about that toe in my shoe right now i don't think i need that toe but let me tell you when that toe was out of what it was supposed to be like my whole body was affected when you are not doing what you're supposed to do in the body, it affects the whole body. When you're not serving the way you're supposed to serve in the body, it affects the whole body. God gave you gifts, and He didn't give you gifts so that you can you can establish a name, so that you can make more money, so that you can talk about what you can do. God gave you gifts for the common good, for the building up of the body. And hear me. If you're not serving using the gifts that God has given you, you need to start. Because you're sinning against God. Now some of you can say, well Rocky, I've served in the past. Where does it say in the Bible? You serve for a season and then you don't serve anymore? No. A slave serves the master until he dies. And we are slaves to our master, Jesus Christ. The way that you serve, the role that you serve in may change in seasons of life, but you find where you can serve. So you need to discover your giftedness. Now, how do you do that? Well, you can take tests and you can take assessments, but I don't think that's the best way. And and there's a couple of reasons why. One, a test is only going to tell you what you think about yourself. I mean, really, seriously, right? It's only going to tell you what you think about yourself. But then second, whenever we take tests, we're assuming that every gift that the Bible tells us, is, is that's an exhaustive list of gifts. And if that's the case, there are about 22 gifts. That's it. 
And I got to tell you, I believe that God is more creative than that. I believe that God gifts the church for what he needs the church to accomplish. And so the 22 gifts that we read in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Peter, they're not an exhaustive list of gifts. You say, well, why do you believe that? Well, one, I believe God is bigger than that. But then two, when we read a list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, there's none of us say that's an entire list of sins. When we read about the works of the flesh in in Galatians 5, there are none of us that say, well, that's all the works of the flesh. We know that that's a sampling, don't we? I personally believe that God gifts us with what God needs us to do. There are some of you here that have gifts of caring. You would be great at, at, at serving as care leaders and deacons in our church. There are some of you that have the gift of hospitality. You just make people feel welcome. And you would be incredible in our first impressions ministry. There are some of you that have musical gifts. I don't have those. And if you have those gifts, you need to use those for God's glory. There are some of you that have teaching gifts. There there are some of you that have administrative gifts. There are all kinds of gifts that we can have. The question we need to ask is, am I utilizing the gifts that God has given me to build his body? If we're not, we're sabotaging the church. Here's the third thing. When I serve without love, I'm sabotaging the body. Now, we've talked about serving. We all need to serve. But understand, we need to serve with love. I I want you to look at verse 31 of chapter 12 before we look at chapter 13. The last part of chapter 12, verse 31 says this. And I want to show you the most excellent way. You see, what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to lift up spiritual gifts, don't we? And we lift up certain gifts. And we think that the people that have these gifts are something incredible. And yet Paul says there's something more important than giftedness. And that's fruit. You see, fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifting of the Spirit. Now hear me. If I never discovered my spiritual gift, but I serve in love, I'm going to be effective. Because I got to tell you what, love covers a multitude of wrongs, doesn't it? And not just the wrongs that people do toward us, but when we are serving in love, it covers A lot of mistakes that we make, doesn't it? It it really, do you agree with me? Love covers a, a multitude of wrongs. And so you see, the most important thing is not that I'm exercising my gift, though that's important. The most important thing is I'm exercising my service in love. Because listen to what Paul says in chapter 13, verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I'm only a resounding God or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he says in verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Everything else is going to pass away. Faith, hope, and love remain. And then he says, the greatest of these is love. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, the first one is what? 
love. Why is love first? Because every other piece of fruit flows from love. When we get the love down pat, everything else will take care of itself. That's why Jesus said, by this will everyone know that you're my disciple. By the love you have, one for another. Love is more important than anything. Now let's move on. Number four. Fourth way to sabotage the church is speak in an unknown language. You say, uh-oh, he's going to deal with it now. Well, let's listen to what it says. Now, brothers, if I come to you and I speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker. And he is a foreigner to me. And then it goes on in verse 23 and it says this, So, If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever, someone who does not understand, comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now listen, regardless of what you believe about tongues, this much is clear. Whenever the church at Corinth spoke in tongues, it was pure chaos. It was chaotic. And Paul said that when unbelievers come in and they see you doing this, most likely they will never come back again. You see, uninterpreted tongues do not stimulate belief. Uninterpreted tongues stimulates unbelief. Back when I was a child... And my mother grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church, and they're the happiest of all of the happy denominations. And, um, and occasionally, I would stay with my grandmother and go to the Pentecostal holiness church. And, and I can remember, and listen, my, my mother is the most godly woman I know in the world. My grandmother, she was a godly lady. But I can remember the first time they spoke in tongues at this church and everyone started speaking in tongues at the same time and i was sitting there as a young child going oh whoa what's going on and i got to tell you i wasn't prepared for it my mom didn't kind of set the stage for me and and i was i was a little afraid now it didn't keep me from believing because fortunately i was raised in a church where bible teaching was vital and, and so I, I heard the gospel and learned the gospel. But here's what I know. There was tongues without interpretation and it was a lot of noise. And, and, and it didn't edify anyone but the person who was speaking. And the Bible teaches that when we exercise gifts, it's for the edification of the body and it's for the glory of God. 
And so whenever I exercise a gift in a way that edifies me and not others, and it brings glory and attention to me and not Jesus, you can be sure something is wrong with the exercising of my gift. Now, that's speaking in tongues. And the Bible says that if there is a church where they speak in tongues, there always has to be interpretation. But may I say to you that I've discovered that many churches today speak in an unknown language that never speak in tongues. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I grew up in church. Dad's a pastor. I mean, week one after I was born, I was in church. I learned the lingo. I could find the verses. I could sing the songs. I knew all about being born again. I knew all about being spirit-filled, being sanctified, being holy. I knew about being washed in the blood. I knew the lingo. But what about people who didn't know the lingo? Do you think if you talk about being washed in the blood and someone has no clue what you're talking about, that can be a little confusing at least and maybe frightening at worst? You see, when I was a child, for the most part, people knew our lingo. Today, the people that we encounter, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends that you're going to invite to church here, they don't know the lingo. And yet, it's still easy for us to use it, isn't it? And when we use it, we're speaking in an unknown tongue. To them. And sometimes they may leave without coming back because we're using words they don't understand. Now, some of you are going to say, well, they need to learn our words. Man, that's Christ like. I mean, I, I can hear Paul's words ringing in my mind when you say that. I've become all things to all men so that I may win a few. I can think about him ministering at Mars Hill to the philosophers of his day. They need to learn our lingo. No, maybe we need to learn their lingo. So that we can better share the timeless truth of Jesus with them. You see, we need to guard against using language that people that are far from Jesus have no clue what we're saying. Fifth thing. If we want to sabotage our worship services, we worship without order. Then in chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, Paul talks about this whole order thing to the end of the chapter. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, when we come together, everyone has a hymn. Everyone. I want you to hear that. Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. And all of these must be done for strengthening the church. And so here was this church coming together and everyone had a song to sing. Everyone had a word to share. Everyone had a a, a tongue to give. Everyone had an interpretation to that. Now, can I tell you right now, either this was a really small gathering or it was a really long gathering. Can you imagine if we came together on Sunday morning and we said, okay, everyone that has a song, let her rip. Now, we're living in a different day and age right now. And most of you, Or like me, and you would not break out in a song for for all for for a thousand bucks. You just wouldn't do it. Because you know how you sing. 
But, but let me just say, if 15 of you said, I got a song in my heart, it's going to be a long service. And then if we said, okay, everybody that has a word to share, I know some of you. I give you an opportunity, you're going to take it. And you're going to share, and you're going to share, and you're going to share, and you're going to share. And it's going to be four hours later, and you're going to still be sharing. And the rest of us are going to be going, it's time for lunch. You see, this was either a very small gathering, or it was a very long gathering. But the point is, they said everything needs to be done For the strengthening of the church. You don't sing a song so that people will go, oh, wasn't that special? You don't share a word so that people will know, man, he's been in the word this week. You do it for the strengthening of the church. And then verse 40 says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, in between, he deals with speaking in tongues and prophecy. And he deals with women. And I'm not going to do that. But he deals with all of that and he says everything has to be done in an orderly way. Obviously, obviously, when they gathered, it wasn't orderly. It was chaos. Every man, every woman for themselves, whoever could speak the loudest and the proudest and the longest had the floor. And Paul said, no, you don't do it that way. You come together to strengthen the church. And whenever you do it, everything has to be done in a fitting and orderly way. And you see, hear me, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. Paul gives us 10 things. And he says, any of these can sabotage your church gathering. Now, here's what I know. There's not a single one of you, I don't think, I don't think there's a satanic spy in here. I don't think there is. I think most of us in here, perhaps all of us in here, boy, all we want is for God to move in our midst. And yet at the same time, I know that each and every one of us, if we're not careful, can sabotage what God wants to do. Not intentionally, not on purpose, but we do it because we don't follow God's clear divine directives. That's why he gives us the word to guide us, to direct us, give us some principles to follow. Now, as we close, there are two things that I want to just point out, and then we're going to pray. First is this baptism of the Spirit. If you're here and God's Spirit isn't living in you, Romans 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you do not belong to Christ. If you're here and God's spirit is not living in you, you haven't been born again. And that means that Jesus hasn't come to live in you and give you a fresh start. And I want to encourage you today to surrender yourself to Jesus. Admit that you've got a sin problem you can't solve. Believe that he died in your place to pay for your sins and and surrender your life to him. And he'll change you. He'll give you a brand new start. And through the power of His Spirit coming to take up residence in your life that is beyond my understanding, He'll begin to guide and direct you. And so if that's you today and you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that in just a minute. But then second, if you're here and you're a part of Northside and you're not serving, and there's plenty of places that you can serve, 
I want you to make the commitment today. I'm going to start serving. Because God doesn't want you to be a consumer. He wants you to be a contributor. And let me say, sitting isn't a spiritual gift. It's not. Attending isn't a spiritual gift. But he's gifted you. And he wants you to use them. And so bow your head with me. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. First of all, if you're here, and God's Spirit has never come to live in you, you know that nothing has ever changed in your life. Then I want to encourage you today to surrender your life to Jesus. Let His Spirit come into your life. You can do that by praying this prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. And my sin leads to death. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting you to save me. I've surrendered my life to you. Come into my life. Take control. I want to follow you, Jesus. Amen. With your head still bowed, your eyes still closed. If you're here and you're not serving, would you pray this prayer right now? Dear Jesus, forgive me for not serving in the body. Forgive me for not using my gifts to strengthen this body. Today, I make the commitment to begin serving. Give me direction As I seek to find my place of service. Using the gifts you have given me. Amen.